0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'd like to say it's good to see you. I guess I'll say it's good to be seen. Um, Last week, I bit off a bit more than what we could chew. And so in a way, we're going to be having some leftovers today. But you know how sometimes leftovers, sometimes some dishes are just better on the second day and some leftovers are more than plenty for a meal in themselves? Well, I reckon that's probably going to be the case for us today. So we're going to be reading Philippians chapter 1 verses 6 to 11. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and the confirmation of the gospel. Righto. so we finished up last week by talking about how we can be partners in the gospel of Christ and and how we're all in this together. In Christ, the Christian church is a fellowship of grace and in Christ we are a fellowship who support one another and, and who love one another and we build one another up and we're in ministry together. And Paul identified three ways that the Philippian church were doing this. Firstly, They supported him in his imprisonment. And we talked briefly about how we, the free church, have a responsibility to partnership with Christians who are being persecuted. And we can partner with them by providing for them financially, and by praying for them, and by simply remembering them. Because all too often they just become the forgotten suffering church. Secondly, the Philippian church shared in Paul's ministry in the defense of the gospel and we're going to be touching on that again a little bit more today and thirdly they shared in his ministry through the confirmation of the gospel and that's where we got to and that's going to be our topic for today to confirm the gospel is to demonstrate that it's true and that it's operational uh, back in the day I had a Land Cruiser trayback ute, and and being a young fella, of course, I had to have the aftermarket turbo. You know, just give it that bit more power. You know, so this is back in the days before cars came, well, before that sort of car had a had a turbo on it. And so I got one of those installed, and and to look after it, I installed a turbo timer, right? And some of you know what those are, uh, but for those who don't, I'll explain it. All right, so hopefully you already know this but but it's always better for an engine if before you work it hard that you let it warm up a bit but it's also good for an engine that if you let it idle to cool down before you shut it off and and that is especially so if your engine has a turbo and so if you've been working an engine hard which I was pretty good at back in the day uh, it's pretty important to let your turbo cool down before you shut it off And depending on just how hard the engine's been working, well, that can take a few minutes. Anyway, not everybody can afford to spare those few minutes. And so you can get around this by installing a device called a turbo timer. And so with a turbo timer, yeah, you might be trying to catch the post office before it shuts. So you fly into town and after racing there to catch the post office, um, the last thing you want to do is is to waste a few minutes sitting out the front waiting for your engine to cool down. So in that case, you can turn off your key, make sure you don't leave your car in gear, by the way, because the engine's going to keep on running, and then you can get out, you can lock up your car, and you can go on into the post office, and, you, and your car's still sitting out there in the street chugging away. And with my turbo timer, it could, I could set it for one minute, three minutes, or five minutes, and if it was set for three minutes. It would run for three minutes and then after that it had shut itself down. At least that's what it was supposed to do. Um, by the way, um, there were times if I had to quickly duck into the shop and I knew it would only be two or three minutes, I'd flick the switch on to five minutes and that way it's still running when I get back out to it again and the air conditioner's still gone on and, and the ute's nice and cool. But when I first installed that thing, how could I know that I trusted it? I mean the last thing I'd want to do is is to pull the car up somewhere and for it to continue idling for a whole day while I was doing something else. How could I know that it was actually going to turn itself off? How could I confirm that it was real and that it was operational and that it was effective? Well, I think probably the first half a dozen times I I used it, I actually stood there nearby and watched it to make sure it shut down before I headed off to do do what I'd travelled there to do. Um, So it's sort of a bit like, how do you know that the light turns off in the refrigerator when you close the door? Oh, dear. It's an important question, isn't it? Now, I observed it to confirm its authenticity. I observed it so that I could confirm, hey, this thing is real. It doesn't just say that it's going to shut the engine down. It actually does shut the engine down. So how do we confirm the gospel? How do we demonstrate the authenticity of the gospel? And how can we demonstrate that to a world who don't even believe the gospel? Well, the gospel can be confirmed through observation. See, the gospel isn't just some kind of empty concept. It's, it's not pie in the sky when you die. And it's, it's not something which is idyllic but non-existent. The gospel among the people of God is to be demonstrated. And therefore it can be observed through things like love, fellowship, purity, righteousness, holiness jesus said in john chapter 13 by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you wear a cross and carry a great big bible around that's not what he said is it what did he say by this all people will know that you are my disciples all Right? so here's the evidence here is the confirmation of the gospel if you have love for one another. And we need to realise this, that that, that this doesn't just apply to the original 12 disciples. We are disciples of Jesus. And he's saying it to us. By this, all people will know that we are disciples of Jesus if we have love for one another. By the way, I I think that the love that we have for each other is... um, It's probably getting greater and greater than what we ever thought. For me, it's become really evident for me um, in the way that I miss your company. Uh, I didn't think that I'd miss you. No, that's not true. Um, But I didn't realise I would miss you guys as much as what I do. And Paul expressed this very sentiment in verse 8. He says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, remember, Paul was writing this letter from prison, and he's in prison, and what does he yearn for? The, the, the blue skies and the tweeting birds? Does he, learn for, does he yearn for um, a, a, a good T-bone steak? No, what's he yearn for? He yearns to be with the people of God. And we're probably all feeling a little bit like that right now how we yearn for each other, with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, the saying, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, I suspect really the issue is we just take stuff for granted. And we just don't really appreciate what we have until it's gone. And at times we we take fellowship for granted. And I'm so looking forward to when the state government allows us to start opening up our fellowship. And provided the rules remain as they indicate that they're going to be this week uh, when I recorded this, because it keeps changing. um, But it's looking like we're going to be able to have gatherings of up to ten people in this coming week, and so we're going to be able to restart our Bible study groups again. And I'm really looking forward to that. But but keep keep an eye on. I'll I'll be letting us know on email. We've just got to see if that is what they actually actually announce. They've told us that's what they're going to do, but. Just not sure yet. Right. So let's come back to Philippians. What's the confirmation of the gospel? What's the evidence that the gospel is fair income? And what's the evidence that that the gospel is fair income in you? Well, the first evidence is the affection that Christians have for one another. That's what Jesus said. That they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Now I don't know how many times I've I've had people tell me that, yeah, I'm a Christian, I just don't really like going to church. I don't see the need to, really, they tell me. And um, basically what they're telling me is that they actually don't enjoy the company of other Christians. Now, in the kid story that we had last week, uh, Andrew was talking about how the Christian church is like a team. And I just want to say that, that, that a Christian who isn't fellowshipping in a church is like a footballer who doesn't belong to a team. It's a nonsense. It's an anathema. Christians yearn for the fellowship of other Christians. You cannot honestly say, I love God, when you don't love your Christian brother or sister. We're told that in 1 John chapter 4. When a church has a genuine affection toward one another, that is a sign of a church who loved Jesus. So if you want to find a church that loves Jesus, start by seeing how much that church loves one another. The second confirmation of the gospel in a church is when that church has a love that is based on truth. Verse 9 says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Right? Um, An expression of love isn't a confirmation of the gospel if that expression of love is actually a perverted form of love. Sadly, Sometimes knowledge and discernment are abandoned in the name of love. And, and I just find this bizarre, but it happens. And when it happens, love gets distorted. And so it's not true love at all. It's a, it's a false representation of love. So let me give you an example. There are churches who, who have pretty much removed the word sin from their vocabulary. You'll never hear it. You, you, they don't preach repentance from sin uh, they they won't hear people they won't you won't hear a message of you know uh, living a life free of sin because and the reason that this is so is because they don't want people to feel like they're being judged because in their eyes that's that's not loving them And then there are some churches who take this even further. They completely abandon God-given knowledge and discernment and they fabricate their own variety of love. Now, I don't think that I can give you a clearer example of this than than in the area of of the teaching of sexuality. Um, the, The Bible very clearly teaches that God created us male and female and that marriage is to be between a man and a woman. So this is God's good and perfect design for sexual intimacy between one man and one woman within the covenant and the commitment of marriage. And in the scriptures, all other sexual expression can be grouped under the heading of sexual immorality. God despises it. And yet some churches affirm premarital sex. And some churches affirm same-sex marriage and some even conduct weddings for these folk. And they have the belief that love has to come first. And, and, and for me to, to love this person, I have to affirm them and I have to affirm their lifestyle. And they believe that, that if they're not being affirmed, then, then they're not being loved. Such churches have abandoned godly knowledge And they've abandoned godly discernment to construct their own version of love, which is quite dangerous because let me be quite blunt here. If my definition of love necessitates a rejection of God's truth, what does that say about my version of love? It's false, isn't it? And if that distortion of love is, is against God's truth, where does it come from? comes from the evil one it's satanic the sort of distorted love that I just described it's dangerous because it leads to nothing less than spiritual death you see if the message that I receive is a message of affirmation and if it's a message that encourages me to continue on in a life of sin because oh, we don't call that sin anymore. So if there is no repentance, there's no forgiveness and if there's no forgiveness, there's no salvation and any variety of love that causes me to remain in sin and therefore go to hell What kind of a a, a distortion, what kind of a corruption of the gospel is that? That's like saying, oh, because I love my child, I'm not going to discipline him. And yes, of course, if he wants to go and play out on the road, I'm not going to tell him that's wrong. It's exactly the same mentality. Godly knowledge and discernment, they go hand in hand. Uh, They they go hand in hand with each other and they go hand in hand with love. Otherwise, it's not godly love. You know, some people give you the impression that, that they reckon that truth and love or they feel that truth and love are are the antithesis of each other that they're against each other and that that they're opposed to each other you have got to have either one or the other you can't have the two together what a nonsense nothing could be further from the truth godly knowledge and discernment is what builds up love but what is this knowledge about anyway um because it's, it's not just about knowing the rules and regulations, which some people like to think that it is. You know, I've met some people who know their Bibles really well, but they come across as being some of the most loveless critters that you'll ever find anywhere, just full of vinegar and condemnation and, and almost hatred. So I think it's really important for us to remember that this knowledge and this discernment that Paul is talking about here is all within the context and actually the starting point of it is the grace that God has shown to us. Right. So in verse 7, Paul said, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defence and the confirmation of the gospel. We're all partakers of grace. Even as we defend the gospel, we are partakers of grace and it should be getting broadcast out again, this grace that God gives us. When it comes to the knowledge of the things of God, what do you think is perhaps the first and most important thing that we should know and understand? Nothing less than grace. The grace of a God who loved me so much that God didn't want me to remain in my sin. And so he saved me from my sin at a terrible cost to himself. And this is the grace of the God who loves you so much that he gave his life for you to save you from your sin and he loves you so much that he doesn't want any kind of distorted love to prevent you from experiencing grace, and the fullness of grace that's available to you in his pure love, not an inept, distorted love. A distorted love, sometimes sometimes it prevents us from experiencing the fullness of God's overflowing grace, because, because the human heart, it tends to, to negate sin and go, oh, that sin, it doesn't matter so much. In fact, we won't call that sin anymore. And so it negates sin. And so we actually don't experience the fullness of the grace of a God who wants to redeem us from sin. Do you, you understand the difference? God didn't negate sin and say, oh, it just doesn't matter anymore. He redeemed us from sin because sin is very real. And it's something we need to be saved from. If we didn't need to be saved from it, then Jesus wouldn't have died. We cannot just negate sin. I'm going to say something really profound now. Uh, This will probably, actually I'm pretty confident, this is going to be the most important thing that you hear all day. And if you don't remember anything from this sermon, wake up so that you do hear this, you're ready for it. God Knows best. It's that simple. I don't know best. God knows best. And God's love isn't something that I can improve upon just by modifying it a bit. God's love is a love that saves. And it's a love that's based on truth. And it's a love that works. The confirmation of the gospel is when a grace-filled church grows in love, truth, and discernment. That's when we can see that the gospel is real. But I haven't said a lot about discernment yet, have I? We talked about truth, and and I'm, I'm sort of equating knowledge with truth. But what about discernment? Well, knowledge and discernment Well, they need to go together. Do you know the difference? Knowledge can be learned. Discernment is to do with wisdom. It's a gift of God. It it can be sharpened by increasing our knowledge, our discernment can. Like the more truth we know, um, the more it helps us to understand more truth. But essentially, discernment is a spiritual gift. And Paul's prayer was that they, and I'm going to say we, so that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That it would abound more and more, that it would be growing all the time, not just our love. Yes, we want our love to be growing and growing more and more all the time, but we want our knowledge and our discernment to be growing more and more all the time. Now, I don't, think, I don't think there's really any great secret to knowledge. You know how some people know the scriptures really, really well? Do you know how that comes about? They read the scriptures a lot. And they don't just read over it. They study the scriptures. They, they, they just read them over and over again. And they dwell on the word of God. And they pray, Lord, what are you saying to me through this? Now, for me personally... Uh, most biblical knowledge that I have is, is from studying God's word. Uh, I didn't get it from Bible college. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm a Bible college basher. And yeah, you know how some people are Bible college bashers. Oh, it's just going to ruin you. It'll ruin your faith. And that, that's not true. There are some really good Bible colleges, and they will help you to understand the scriptures better. They'll help you to know God better. Um Only if you already have a love for God and only if you already have a love for his word. But the greatest thing that's helped me to grow in God is is daily reading his word. And I've done that ever since I was a teenager, maybe before. Uh, But the second thing that's really helped me to grow in his knowledge is driving tractors. (laughs) Some of you go, what? Well, in... In the years gone by, when I've driven tractors for days and days on end, I just take—I used to take boxes of audio cassettes and, and listen to them of, of Bible teachers. And I just devoured uh, this Bible teaching as I drove tractors. And some of you have told me that you do something similar, only things have moved on because some of you have probably never seen an audio cassette in person. If you go to a good museum, you might find one. Or if you go to Grandma or Grandpa's place, you might find one. But you guys use MP3 players now or do podcasts or whatever it is you do. but, but people today still as they travel or as they drive tractors, some people um, just devour Bible teaching. But the second part of this is discernment. right? Knowledge on its own, Bible te- devouring Bible teaching on its own isn't enough. We need to have discernment. And I say this because there are some really, really popular Bible teachers who are not teaching biblical truth. And that's where the spiritual gift of discernment kicks in. Devouring teaching, well, that's a very good thing, but not if it's false teaching. In fact, it's quite negative and can be quite destructive. Now, don't let that prevent you from devouring teaching, but make it be be something that that pushes you to, to seek the gift of discernment. Some people in the church have a very real gift of discernment and they can filter what's being said and they can very quickly tell you whether this is godly teaching that you're listening to or or whether it's a falsehood. Now, because it's a spiritual gift, we pray that, that the gift of discernment will grow in the church. Now, why do we pray that it grows in the church? Why don't I just pray that I get it for myself? Well, yes, you can pray that you get the gift of discernment yourself as well. But what we have to realize is with spiritual gifts, we don't all have the same spiritual gifts, do we? Right, so some people have the gift of healing, but not many. Some people have the gift of speaking in other languages, but not many. Some people have the gift of teaching, but not many. Some people have the gift of hospitality, but not everyone. And it's the same with the gift of discernment. And so for the church to work as the body that God has designed us to be, it's really important that we in our church recognize those people who who have the gift of discernment. Now, this can take a bit of swallowing our pride because in so many ways, we like to think that, that we are fully sufficient ourselves and we can work everything out ourselves. But if there's one thing that I've learned about the spiritual gifts is by myself, I am deficient. In the church, there's things that I cannot do. And there's things that I depend on you because you have spiritual gifts that I don't have. And this is, this is one of those areas where, where you may be think, feeling, I oh, wish I have the gift of discernment. And, and you might even assume that you do. And so you don't want to take advice from anybody else when what we needed to be doing is identifying those people in the church who truly have this gift of discernment and listening to them. And if they start ringing alarm bells, well, pay attention to them and check out in the scriptures whether what they're saying is true or not because they might be guarding you against a false teacher. Um, something I've noticed over the years is that some disciples of Jesus, good Christian people, but... They have a history of being led astray. And it happens to them over and over and over again. Some people are the first to get hooked up in every false teaching or maybe some kind of conspiracy theory or they might get hooked onto the latest new and exciting fad or new exciting teaching and they think, oh, this is great and wonderful. And they wonder why the people with the gift of discernment are stepping back and going, what are you doing? You see, some people with the gift of discernment, you'll see these people... um, embracing this new idea or embracing this new teaching and going, are you people lemmings or something? You are following so blindly. Can you not see? Well, that's the point. We can't always see because they don't have the gift of discernment and you do. And if you have the gift of discernment, it is your duty to warn those in your church when you see them being seduced by false teaching. And if we're praying for discernment to abound more and more in the fellowship of Christ, then we're praying for a couple of things. A, we're praying that those people who do have the gift of discernment will will be bold enough to sound the warning when they notice that others are being misled. But B, we're praying that, that that we would all gain discernment. And that we would all begin to be able to hear this warning and grow in knowledge and truth. And as I said before, even though discernment is a gift, we can all sharpen up our discernment by knowing the scriptures. And so I want to encourage you to go deeper. Go deeper with God. Our relationship with God will only grow as we grow in knowledge and as we grow in discernment. Don't ever confuse a childlike faith with an infantile understanding. Two very different things. We all have to have a childlike faith, but not an infantile understanding. Now, there's many people that they don't want to go past the kid story. If, if they hear the kid's story, yep, that's about as much as I can cope with. That's great. You know what? I've heard people say that a lot. Yeah, you know, I get more out of the kid story than I than I do out of the sermon. Okay, well that says one of three things. It either says, a, the kid sto- the good kid storyteller is an excellent teacher, or b, your preacher is a terrible preacher, or c, you're not wanting to grow in God. It says something about the listener. But here Paul is praying that their knowledge and discernment would grow and that it would grow more and more. Why? Verse 10 says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, it's about guidance for righteous living. The Lord wants us to approve what is excellent. He doesn't want us to just be... be content with with a cursory knowledge of God he wants us to know God and know God's word and understand God's word and by knowing it be ready for when Christ returns I love 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 where it says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof For correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's what Paul's been talking about here. Know the word of God so that we can be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Which now brings us to the third confirmation of the gospel the fruit of righteousness. Uh, we sometimes call it the fruit of the Spirit, which fits beautifully because the fruit of the Spirit is righteousness. Can the effectiveness of the gospel truly be observed? Of course it can. We see it in the righteousness of the people of God. We, we Just answer the question, are we growing more and more righteous every day? Because we should be so. And so if our church is growing in enthusiasm and its members are, are, are just getting more and more enthusiastic, but you notice that people are starting to use profane language and swearing more and more, yeah, that's probably not the spirit of God at work. Or if you notice that our church is now, oh, we're now attracting lots of young people and we're growing in numbers, isn't this wonderful? But at the same time, we are getting lax morally and becoming more and more immoral. Mm, probably not the spirit of God at work. Or if our church has a, a reputation for being alive and we got the most fantastic music and bands and we've got a smoke machine even. yeah, Well, we don't, for those who don't know us. Um, but the congregation, the people of the church are getting more and more tied up in becoming interested in wealth generation and financial prosperity and looking out for themselves, eh, probably not the Spirit of God at work. But when we are a church who genuinely love one another, and when we are a church who who love the world as Christ loved the world, and when we are a church who are being transformed into the image of Christ, and we're casting off sin, that sin which so easily entangles and, and, and repenting of sin. And when we're a church who, who give up the pleasures and the ambitions that most of the world are focusing on and instead we focus on eternity, that's a pretty good sign that, that you're in a church that's growing in the spirit. Last week, we talked a bit about being slaves of Christ. Now, that's not a popular image, but that's the way Paul saw himself. He was a slave of Christ. And I testify to you today, I'm a slave of Christ. I owe him my everything. I owe him my total allegiance. Well, using that image, let's read Romans chapter 6, verses 16 and 18. Do you not know And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Wow. Those those few verses from Romans hold together very well what we've just been talking about. We used to be slaves. And we still are slaves. But our allegiance has changed. At one time, we were slaves of sin, but now we're slaves to Christ. And so we had to or have to relearn what righteousness is. You see, the world thinks it knows very well what is right and what is wrong. It's wrong. See, the world has a very distorted view of righteousness. It is so distorted that that we need to completely unlearn what we've been taught from the worldly system and begin, begin to learn God's way. Which is what I said to, said before, the most important thing is God knows best. And our ideas of righteousness will will sometimes, and for some people often, be out of tune with God's tr- truth of what righteousness truly is. And in God's grace, with knowledge and discernment, and by his spirit, he transforms us and we become the confirmation of the gospel. In a way, it confirms to others what is already true in us, that God has saved us, and God is present in us. Uh, the spiritual salvation that, and the inner transformation that we are experiencing is evident in the outer expression of the fruit of Righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you began a good work in us by bringing us to faith. We thank you that you continue this good work daily as we grow in love and as we grow in knowledge and discernment. Lord, forgive us for when we have had a distorted view of love. Forgive us for the times when we've had the attitude that that we know best. Because, Lord, we don't. You alone know what's best. You alone make real, undistorted love. Help us to love with that sort of love. And, Lord, please don't let us be misled. Our desire is to prove what is excellent. Lord, give us the gift of discernment and help us to recognise those in our midst, those in our own church, maybe those in our own family whom you have gifted with discernment and help us to listen to them that we would not get led down the garden path but rather we would be led into your righteousness. Lord Jesus Christ, help us to be a fellowship of grace filled with love, filled with knowledge, discernment and righteousness. We pray all this in the precious name of our Lord and Saviour and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.